Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Good morning, everyone. The 9,010th meeting of the Security Council is called to order. When the UN Security Council gathered earlier this week, their agenda was Ukraine. I now give the floor to His Excellency Mr. Volodymyr Zelensky, the President of Ukraine. You have the floor, sir. Volodymyr Zelensky appeared remotely. Dear Madam Chairman, and like usual, he came prepared with a video presentation. But the images he shared this time were grimmer than ever. Shocking, really. They were pictures of what or who was left behind when Russian soldiers abandoned their posts outside Kiev. There were images of bodies scattered on concrete or hastily buried. Some had their hands tied. Others were burned. For Zelensky, these kinds of pictures demanded action. Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready to close the UN? Do you think that the time of international law is gone? If your answer is no, then you need to act immediately. Zelensky's whole speech seemed to focus on getting the UN Security Council to label Russia's actions with two important words, war crimes. The Russian military and those who gave them orders must be brought to justice immediately for war crimes in Ukraine. Anyone who has given criminal orders and carried out them by killing our people will be brought before the tribunal, which should be similar to the Nuremberg tribunals. I would like to remind Russian diplomats. I wondered what an expert would make of this presentation. So I called up Stephen Rapp. He was Barack Obama's ambassador at large for war crimes issues. Ambassador Rapp was pretty straightforward. Almost every one of these killings that we see uh, evidence of uh, on the street appear to be uh, uh, war crimes. The challenge you have with these kind of war crimes is proving who did it and attributing it up the chain of command. That's the challenge. But it's unclear who will take up this challenge. Something stood out to me about that meeting, which was that the first person to speak at this meeting of the U.N. Security Council, it wasn't Volodymyr Zelensky. It was a representative from Russia. 
Madam President, before we adopt the agenda, I'd like to express our protest. I looked at that and I just thought, this is why this is so hard, which is Ukraine is coming and presenting evidence of war crimes, but the people who are judging it are the very people who are committing the acts. And, and that's certainly the challenge of the Security Council. Of course, it's been the challenge as we've dealt with the crisis in Syria, which in which Russia has played s such a role in the, in the commission of the worst war crimes, the worst atrocities of this 21st century. But um, if you can't handle this one, what good are you? You might as well quit. Uh, um, it, it won't end. And Ambassador Rapp says there are other routes to justice here. He's sure of it. There will be charges and there will be trials and there will be an international arrest warrant against Vladimir Putin that'll follow him until the day he dies, uh, hopefully uh, in, in custody after having been convicted. And so that will happen and it can't be turned off. And some may be talking about war crimes that have never talked about them before, uh, but they're creating the momentum for all the rest of us to make sure that this gets done and it will be done. The question now is how, when? Today on the show, evidence of war crimes is being gathered in Ukraine right now. Will it make a difference? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I want to start by introducing you to Ambassador Rapp. He is surprisingly good-natured for a guy whose area of expertise is war crimes. He made his name internationally for prosecuting Charles Taylor, the former president of Liberia. Taylor was found guilty of aiding a horrifying civil war in Sierra Leone. 91 witnesses testified against him. After hearing from the final witness, Ambassador Rapp gave this press conference to drive home just how brutal Charles Taylor had been. Uh, the contrast between these victims and the accused uh, could not be more stark. And, and this was brought home in particular by the last witness, a man whose, whose left hand was amputated by the rebels who are alleged to have been controlled or, or aided by Taylor. When his four-year-old son protested the injury to his papa and the rebels then threatened the boy with amputation, the witness then offered his own right hand to save his son, which the rebels then proceeded to chomp off. Uh, here we saw a man the ambassador says in Ukraine, it's going to be testimony like this, coupled with other evidence, that's going to be crucial in proving a war crimes case. This evidence is already being gathered. I know you've been speaking to these people, teams of prosecutors and advocates fanning out across the country, collecting the stories of people who've witnessed what could one day be classified as a war crime? Can you tell me what, what they're doing right now? Well, uh, they're, they're, they're doing uh, the basics of, of, 
of, of collecting uh, the information uh, at what we say uh, are the crime scenes. And, and we know how important that is uh, uh, when, when, when we're talking about, a, say, a mass shooting in the United States uh, or uh, any other, uh, any other uh, violent crime that occurs in, in our society where the uh, police come in. I read that one prosecutor actually told a group of Ukrainians, like, even if a Russian attack only broke your windows or damaged your personal belongings, it could still be considered a war crime. You could still be a victim of war crime. Is that true? Well, that certainly uh, is true. Now, that, that wouldn't probably form the basis of a, of, of a, of a major charge. But, but understand that uh, in a conflict, uh, one should only intentionally target uh, uh, military facilities uh, and, and, and units and, and the forces that you're facing in combat. And you should avoid a civilian and civilian objects. So if your house is hit, it's evidence. It's, it's evidence of a, of a war crime. Now, of course, if, if there's combat carry, taking place in that area, your house will be hit. And if we tried to prosecute on that basis, uh, we would be unsuccessful because it would be impossible to show that they intended to, to hit the house. Uh, on the other hand, if all they do is hit houses and, and, we, and, and there really aren't any military uh, defenders, so the things that they're doing there uh, are almost uh, for certain attacking civilian infrastructure, which in and of itself is a crime. I was struck by one scene in particular that I read about where prosecutors were speaking to people who had fled regions of Russia that had actually been invaded in 2014. And and these Ukrainian people, when they were interviewed by prosecutors, they were asking again and again why do you only care about the terrible things that are happening to us now? Like, Russia's been doing terrible things to us since 2014. And to me, it kind of gets to the flexibility of the definition of war crime, how it's in the eye of the beholder, and what we classify as a war crime may have more to do with the timing of a conflict and which countries are involved than, like, the particular realities of what happened. Do you see it that way? Well, I, I, I certainly see past failures of accountability, but 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 I, I should note that one of the reasons you have these people that are able to do this work is there have been intensive efforts by the U.S. government and, and others uh, to train prosecutors and investigators on war crimes. Uh, uh, I, from 2014 forward, have dealt with the prosecutor general's office from the time that I was ambassador at large uh, and with civil society groups in, in Ukraine like, like Truth Hounds. Uh, but the challenge that they've had uh, is that uh, uh, the perpetrators that they were seeking uh, were outside their control. They were in the separatist areas or they were in Russia. So they were hard to reach. They were hard to reach. So they've built a, a whole lot of files. They just don't have any uh, suspects. Now, of course, that can happen in this big one, <laughs> you know, where uh, uh, they can collect all sorts of evidence uh, uh, about people all the way up to Vladimir Putin. But actually getting into custody will be more difficult. That said... They will get some people in custody now uh, because they're Russian units all over the place and they are sometimes being surrounded uh, and sometimes wounded soldiers are left in the field and it's going to be possible to gather information and, and potentially to find officers uh, who are implicated in the war crimes. It seems to me from the outside like almost an unprecedented effort, like lots of resources going in to gather this evidence now, almost because of maybe lessons learned from the past. But is is my impression accurate? Well, I, there, there, it certainly is a, a large effort. And um, 
you know, my, my own former office had, had, had deployed uh, one of my predecessors out there uh, several weeks before the conflict uh, to work with the prosecutor general on, on, these, on these efforts. Uh, I, I do want to emphasize, because I've spent most of my uh, career uh, dealing with the challenges of war crimes prosecutions, which aren't which don't usually involve the question of whether it's a war crime. It is. <laughs> it's who did it and, uh, and, the, and the importance of collecting linkage evidence. And uh, it, it's in that area we, I think, had great successes in Syria, working with civil society actors, bringing out a million pages of, 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 of government documents from areas that had fallen uh, and had fallen from control of the, of the uh, Assad regime. So that's what you need, and and they may not be getting that. Uh, that uh, hopefully they're focused uh, on those evidences uh, of, of of linkage to high level actors or to units that were involved. You're talking about evidence of intent, and all of all of the evidence that's being gathered now. My understanding is that it could be gathered up and go someplace like the International Criminal Court in The Hague for prosecution. That's correct. I'm wondering how hard it is to prove intent on on the part of someone like Vladimir Putin. Because as you're saying, there's all of this push right now to collect evidence on the ground. But that's just about individual attacks. It's this very micro perspective. How do you link that up to people in the command structure? Well, we, we do have the benefit in, in international justice of, of principles like uh, command responsibility, which have been used since since Nuremberg. And, and, and that establishes the rule that if uh, crimes, war crimes, atrocity crimes are committed uh, by, by even low level actors uh, and commanders know of those crimes or have reason to know, and uh, they fail to, t- to take action to prevent or punish those crimes, those commanders are responsible as if they pull the trigger themselves. And so uh, it may be possible to attribute these up, up the chain, uh, but, do, but do keep in mind that that's, uh, that's often complicated at the scene uh, because uh, it can be argued that these are rogue elements, uh, they're unidentified, they don't know who they are, and, and typically uh, forces that are, using, that are committing a lot of interpersonal rape, murder, torture of, of civilians may be irregular forces. Can you speak from your personal experience here? Like, I know that you prosecuted Liberian President Charles Taylor for war crimes in Sierra Leone. He was the first former head of state to face judgment in an international court on war crimes charges since Nuremberg. So can you explain how that case informs your thinking when you look at Ukraine today? Well, uh, do keep in mind, uh, we have in some ways, great, greater challenges than you have attributing this to Putin. Uh, these, uh, the, the forces that were committing the crime were Sierra Leonean. Uh, Putin, uh, I mean, is the president of the country next door, but he has sent his forces into uh, Ukraine. That's interesting that you see it that way, that the evidence is clearer. The evidence is clearer in Putin's case, because these are almost all under Putin's command. So we don't have the challenge that we had in, in Taylor, where he's in the next country over, uh, and is providing all sorts of covert support to this group in order to get the diamonds, in order to gain political control of the region, et cetera. And, and we have to connect him uh, to those forces. Uh, and, and that required us, uh, in the end, to run more than 20 insider witnesses. How long did it take you to make the case? The prosecution case uh, uh, took a year uh, to present. Uh, 
And then Taylor took the stand for six months and, and tried to knock it down. Uh, uh, obviously, uh, generally made the case stronger, to be frank. Uh, but uh, the real challenge we had is we didn't have a documentary evidence. Uh, we didn't have uh, uh, those kind of direct orders. And, and we had to rely to a great extent uh, on, on insiders who themselves uh, had, uh, had committed crimes. Uh, and, and it took a lot of those uh, to sort of put together the pattern. Uh, in the end, the judges uh, didn't find that Taylor intended the mass killings uh, and the mass amputations and mass rapes and sexual slavery and, and slavery to dig diamonds, et cetera, uh, but that he knew of it and that he provided the essential support uh, to to its commission, uh, the judges attributed responsibility to him. Uh, so that was that was the complexity of that case. That's not the case that Putin presents. If you had Putin in the dock, I'm confident we'd have him. I, I'm confident we have we could build a very strong case against him. After the break, what a more recent trial against a Syrian official could mean for Putin's future. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com easy. Ramp.com easy. R-A-M-P easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. I know that you're also looking at a parallel track other than the International Criminal Court. There was just this case in January where this high-ranking Syrian official basically faced justice in a German court, not the International Criminal Court. Anwar Raslan, who had claimed asylum in Germany, was convicted of mass torture, murder and abuse. The witnesses, the survivors, the campaigners here are thrilled with this verdict. And this verdict really matters. First of all, of course, Do you see something similar as a possibility here when it comes to Ukraine? Well, absolutely. That's that's a part of the fabric of it. And, and the European war crimes prosecutors are mobilizing on this. Uh, uh, the U.S. law isn't perfect in this respect. We have a war crime statute, but there's some loopholes in it. Uh, I hope I heard that Senator Durbin uh, on uh, on Wednesday uh, uh, introduced uh, legislation uh, to, to to close those loopholes and uh, called the Ukrainian Accountability Act. I hope that gets bipartisan support so we can actually prosecute cases in America. Now these aren't going to happen tomorrow afternoon, uh, but you know, in 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 some time in the future. Uh, we're going to have uh, one of these oligarchs. We're going to have somebody who's, who bears some responsibility or, or some low-level person who pretended to be a, a, a victim, but in fact, they're a victimizer, uh, turn up in the U.S. like we've had people from the Rwandan genocide turn up. And, and so uh, those can be prosecuted. 
What would be your opening statement if you were prosecuting Putin? The opening statement uh, would be, obviously, uh, to talk about the uh, even though aggression isn't the crime, we're, we're talking about, uh, you know, death raining from the sky, uh, you know, on a on a morning in February uh, across a peaceful country uh, and and uh, the targets uh, being um, so heavily uh, and, and increasingly uh, civilians, uh, men, women and children uh, who haven't done a, a thing to provoke Russia. Now, of course, again, this isn't the, an aggression prosecution and there's talk of creating a tribunal for that. It, it, it is the war crimes, but one would then uh, move to the to the crime scene, uh, to 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 the to the destruction of civilian infrastructure, to the pattern of of, of attack, which uh, can only show can, the only inference is that it really is to terrorize the population into submission. Uh, it's not about taking out military targets, and it's illegal to, to to prevent people from having food and medicine. You'd have to provide that access; otherwise, you're committing the war crime of starvation. You're doing it, so we'd be laying out all those sort of pattern things, and then we'd be getting on to talk about what individual soldiers may have done in the field. Uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps it was indiscipline. Maybe they weren't doing the right thing. We don't have a plan. But did Putin do anything to them? Did he prosecute them? Did he investigate it? No, it was just denial. Who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? I kind of struggle with this question when I think about war crime prosecutions, which is how much they really matter to hold an individual responsible for a war, it doesn't seem preventative. It seems like these atrocities are still ongoing. How do you see it as a prosecutor? Well, um, you know, the, the, the challenge of being a prosecutor, of course, and I was a federal prosecutor, United States attorney in my home state of Iowa for, for eight years before going to the international level is, of course, it's hard to show that any prosecution uh, deters uh, uh, in, a, in a demonstrative way. I've heard you say in previous interviews, you know, we basically hope these prosecutions keep things from getting worse. Well, indeed. And, and one of our problems, uh, certainly since, uh, since the Syrian uh, blockage, uh, has been the perception that you can get away with it. You mean because Syria was not brought to the International Criminal Court? Was not brought to International Criminal Court. But, uh, you know, the, the perception was you could get away with it We're there for a while. Uh, you know, it was in the calculation of leaders. Hey, I could end up in, uh, in, in with, as an international pariah, unable to travel to visit my family who are living in the mansion that I've stolen, uh, you know, et cetera. Did what happened in Syria change your perspective on how these prosecutions work and don't work? Well, it, 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 it certainly redoubled my dedication uh, to find another route to justice when we couldn't do it internationally. And, and we've eventually been able to, to I think, do that uh, with, you know, internationally supported mechanisms and massive support to uh, to documentation of the crimes. And, and we're getting around it sort of in the, uh, uh, through through the back the back alley in a way. But since uh, Syria, obviously, Putin knows he can get away with it. And, and so uh, there's increasingly a, a sense that uh, that these uh, these cha- that these mechanisms don't work. So is the system broken? Well, it, it never got completely up and running. And, and now I think huh. we have a, an, an opportunity to focus attention on, on repairing it uh, and, and, and sending a clear message uh, and, and doing something quite effective uh, this time. 
uh, you're not going to get everybody. But uh, the important message that's sent is that these crimes are different than others uh, because there will be no rest in this life. Uh, you know, even like the way the Nazi camp guards that are 95 are being uh, tried in Germany now. Uh, people say that's sad doing it to some old guy. Well, it's a key message. You will never have a, a quiet day. And so that's the kind of perception that we need to uh, need, need to build. But it's different to hold the leader of Russia accountable. It seems to me like it's a different project. It is a different project. But I mean, we had uh, uh, Charles Taylor was given a safe exile uh, to get him out of power. Uh, uh, but we still got him in three years. Uh, and so, you know, it, it has it has worked in, in, in other situations. What's necessary is to have the political uh, influence and, and tools and economic tools to make it work. I mean, in the former Yugoslavia, it meant uh, no no aid for reconstruction. It meant no lifting of sanctions. But what about Russia? They'll be in that same box. Uh, they can't use their MasterCards. They can't pay off their uh, their sovereign debt. Uh, you know, all of that kind of thing is is there. Uh, I mean, there'll be a lot of pressure to, to, to let them back in if they just stop. Uh, but frankly, no, <laughs> they need to comply with international law. And that means uh, uh, cooperating uh, with these international institutions. And, and that's what you need to do. And you're going to need to be serious as a heart attack about it, just as we are when we're trying to take on a mob boss or, 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 or someone that's committing uh, horrible violence from a terrorist organization. Do you worry at all that the rush over the last week and before that too to talk about what's happening in Ukraine as war crimes is a PR move like it it won't have the weight of an actual war crimes prosecution in an international court and so it becomes more saber rattling well uh, that <laughs> build, building cases and taking taking them into court uh, in, in the Ukrainian justice system, uh, which exists uh, and is, is independent, that is something that won't stop. Once you turn on justice, you cannot turn it off. Ambassador Rapp, I'm really grateful for your time. Great to talk with you. Stephen Rapp is the former United States ambassador-at-large for war crimes issues. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Carmel Del Shad, Mary Wilson, and Elena Schwartz. We're getting a little help from Anna Rubinova and Laura Spencer. Our executive producer is Joanne Levine. And Slate Podcasts is led by Alicia Montgomery. I'm Mary Harris. Tomorrow, check out this feed for What Next TBD with Lizzie O'Leary. And I will be back here on Monday. Catch you then.